Well, good morning, River City. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Looking forward to opening God's Word with you. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you, we'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And like Becca was saying, small groups is a great way to do that. Obviously not this week, since you'll be alone by yourself if you try to go to one. But the week after that, we'd love to, love to invite you to one and love to help you get connected. Like I said, excited as well to continue uh, working our way through the Gospel of John. We're going to be taking a look at John's Gospel from now until basically Easter as we uh, kind of align John's Gospel with our timing as we celebrate Easter. But from the beginning, what we've, what we've seen is that like the other three Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John's Gospel, it's kind of like a documentary that tells us the, tells the story of Jesus' life and ministry. And, but what we've seen so far is that John's documentary is very unique. It's very different than the other three. We kind of jokingly, I say, you kind of think about it as like the Top Gun gospel, like the Maverick gospel, like it's, it's doing its own thing. It's going a different direction than the other three, right? We saw while 90% of Mark's stories appear in Matthew or Luke, 90% of the material that we see in the gospel of John is, is unique to, to John. He totally ignores all kinds of things the other three focus on, and he gives us a bunch of new kind of behind the scenes, like footage from the archives, right? Stuff that hasn't been seen before. And, and he gives us a new picture, a new glimpse of, of who Jesus really is. And we said that the reason for a lot of those differences has to do with the fact that John is writing his gospel about 20 or 30 years after the other three gospels have already been written. And combined... That later date combined with the strong likelihood that John's writing it from the city of Ephesus, which had become kind of like the center of the Christian world by the end of the first century, meant that the audience that John's writing to would almost certainly have had access to and been familiar with the, the other three gospel writers' accounts of Jesus' life. And in fact, it's likely that a significant portion of John's readers that he has in mind were second or third generation Christians, people who had kind of grown up in Christian families whose parents or grandparents believed in Jesus for some of the first to do that. And so they'd grown up hearing all the stories and reading them in the Gospels or, or becoming familiar with that. They were, they were really familiar with what Jesus said and did. Maybe, maybe a little bit too familiar. You see, John, what he's trying to do is not rehash everything for a fourth time. He's, he's not trying to just make another documentary about what Jesus said and what Jesus did, just throwing in his perspective. Instead, what John is trying to do throughout this Gospel is to wake people up. A people that maybe have a groggy familiarity with Jesus. And he presents this spectacular, captivating, life-altering picture of who Jesus said he was and proved himself to be. So that a, a head-level knowledge about Jesus might become like a heart-level faith in him that transforms people's lives both now and forever. And as we opened the first couple of verses last week, what we saw is that the, the picture that John paints about who Jesus is, is cosmically huge. He's not just a good teacher or merely some divinely appointed prophet or some from anointed king. He is God himself. He's the author of all life and light and truth. And in Jesus, God has come near to humanity so that we might know him truly and that we might relate to him personally. And as we take a look at the rest of chapter one this morning, that's exactly what we're going to see happening. We're going to get these three accounts, these three kind of vignettes, three groups of people who each have this personal encounter with Jesus. 
What we're going to see happening is that in each of these encounters, they come to know something about who Jesus is. They get a clear picture of his identity. But John is also trying to show us not just something about who Jesus is in these three encounters. He's also trying to show us something about how you come to know the truth about Jesus, as well as how that truth changes you. I can't wait to show you that this morning. And so let's pray. We'll dive right into it. We've got a lot to get to. I can't wait to show you. God, thanks so much for your word and for our time together in it this morning. And God, as we come, we do every week, we want to come humbly to you, asking that you might graciously by your spirit speak to us, that you might show us the truth, not just about who you are, Jesus, but about, about how we come to know that truth and how that truth transforms our lives. And God, I can't do any of that. I can't just be really winsome about it or just really factual. God, I need you to be the one that reveals the truth about yourself to our hearts. And so I ask that as we study this morning, you would do that. And I pray that you do it for our good so that we might come to know you and worship you. But also, God, I would pray that you do it for your glory as we see you rightly and live lives that are transformed by you for your glory. So we pray all that, God. Amen. Amen. We're going to begin in John chapter 1. This morning we're in verses 19 through 51 begins this way. Now this is John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. And that's again, this is not John the author of the book, this is John the Baptist. He appears in all four of the Gospels. Verse 20, he didn't fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. For what do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He's the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And this all happened in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and they said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when, uh, this is the one I, meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus saw them following when he asked, what do you want? And I said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he said, he replied, and you'll see. And so they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and he said, you are Simon's son of John. You will be called Cephas. Which, was, which when translated is Peter. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. 
And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and he told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, You believed because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And then he added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, there is a lot going on in these 40 or so verses, 30, 40 verses here. And there's way more, in fact, that that we have time to dig into. There's a lot that John is going to say in these verses about who Jesus is and what it means to know him and to follow him. And we just don't have time to get into all of it. In fact, John uses these verses as kind of like a, it's kind of like a table of contents for the rest of the book. In a lot of ways, he's giving you like chapter headings in these verses about what he's going to talk about later and who he's going to show that Jesus said and revealed himself to be. And so instead of zooming in on every detail this morning, what we're going to do is kind of zoom back. And what I want to do is take a look at each of these three little vignettes, these, each of these encounters that these people have with Jesus and highlight in each of them three things. One, who, do, who is Jesus revealing himself to be? Two, how do people come to know the truth about him? And three, how does knowing that truth change people? And so as we look at each vignette, we're going to look at those three things. And and like I said, we're not going to get to every detail. There's way more here than we have time to get to. And so if you have questions about something we read that we didn't get to, come find me afterwards. I'd love to chat with you about that and, and help you investigate that a little bit further. But Let's begin this way. The first vignette John presents, he centers us around another guy named John. This this other John that's in the center of the passage here is, is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, he briefly appears in all four of the gospel accounts near the beginning, and then he pretty quickly kind of fades into the background because in all of those gospel accounts, John functions as basically like a, in a lot of ways, he functions as kind of a link or a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and at the same time, he's also the first one who heralds the arrival of this long-awaited Messiah. And that really helps us to, to see and to learn about what Jesus, about who John is showing us Jesus is in that first vignette. Because you see, John and the other Old New Testament writers, the gospel writers, what, one of the things that you see them doing over and over again is they keep referencing, they keep alluding to a bunch of these Old Testament events or practices and that find their fulfillment ultimately in Jesus. And we see that happening in verse 29. John's testimony about Jesus, it climaxes there, and he says this, John saw Jesus coming to towards him. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when you and I think about a lamb, right, we kind of tend to think about this tiny little fuzzy cute animal, right? I can, like my daughter Emma would just be like, I want to squeeze it. I just want to hold it, right? You know, we tend to kind of think in those kinds of ways about a lamb. But I can guarantee you that when the, the hearers of John the Baptist, when they heard John talking about a lamb, the, they did not have a cute fuzzy animal in mind. What they had is kind of a bloody endeavor in mind. You see, they, that would have immediately brought to mind the Passover lamb and the blood that was put on the doors of the houses in Egypt, and which would kind of be a foreshadowing of the whole sacrificial system. 
You see, one of the things that God makes clear throughout the Bible is that sin is a really big deal. That it's such a big deal that the only way to remove it, the only way to cover it, the only way to pay for it is with blood. See, that's because sin, we tend to think about sin as like a mistake or sin as bad behavior. But the reality is that the Bible describes sin not as just bad behavior, but as mutinous rebellion. All of us think that we want to be God. We dethrone God and we enthrone ourselves as the ones who are the arbiters of what is true and right and good. And, and the reality is, is that that produces all kinds of messed up behaviors. But the, the real reality of sin is that all of us have rejected God's good authority. We've committed treason against him. And see, and so what the Bible makes clear is that there is no greater offense than that. So blood must be spilled. In the Old Testament, the, the people of God, they traveled to the temple and they followed these elaborate instructions and they sacrificed animals in order to ensure that their sins would be taken away. But every serious believer, what they always knew was that that was always foreshadowing something else. It was always foreshadowing this reality, right? Because what they knew is that the blood of animals couldn't really take away sin. It was always a short-term solution. It was a stopgap solution. The lambs and goats and bulls that they sacrificed, they all pointed forward to a day that there would be an ultimate sacrifice that would remove sin altogether. Now one day there would be, that it would completely remove sin and the corresponding separation from God. And, and so what John the Baptist is doing in calling Jesus the Lamb of God is he's saying that day has finally come. The sacrifice that all the sacrifices were pointing to that day is finally here, but it's not come the way you thought it would. God isn't just sending a better lamb, a different lamb. He's sending his own lamb. The perfect sacrifice. One who is sinless, without blemish. One who might be able to receive the punishment for our sin and actually pay its penalty in full. So that you and I might be forgiven not just forgiven, but that we might have the very presence of God, His Spirit, dwelling in us. It's this incredible reality that John is pointing to here. And you've got to ask the question, how does John come to know that? He's the very first one who seems to herald this reality about Jesus. How does he come to know that? Verse 33, it tells it this way. He says, I myself didn't know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. You see, John did not solve a riddle. He didn't read through the Old Testament enough times and figure out the story. He didn't undo the puzzle. He didn't solve the mystery. He didn't have some personal epiphany and just figure it out. No, what John says is that the truth about Jesus was revealed to me. One commentator puts it this way, John's knowledge of Jesus' true identity was not some innate knowledge, something he figured out himself. It was a knowledge that had come to him through revelation. For true knowledge about God is beyond human reach. It is a gift always of divine disclosure. So here's the reality. You're going to keep seeing this over and over and again in John's Gospel. Those who have come to know the truth about who Jesus is, they didn't figure it out, they didn't reason their way into it, they didn't solve the riddle or figure out the mystery. But God showed it to them. He opened up their eyes so that they might see the truth about Jesus. And the fact that they know anything about him is a gift from him. You see, later on in, in John, Jesus will put it this way, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
See, what happens is, is when you come to see the truth about Jesus, that he's the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, and that you also see that your knowledge of that reality is a miraculous gift of God, that you didn't figure it out, you didn't earn it, you didn't, you didn't solve the mystery, you didn't, do, you didn't solve the puzzle yourself. What happens is that you see it as a gift. What happens is your life starts to get radically transformed. And what it produces in you is a kind of humble fearlessness that you see in John the Baptist. You see, you start to become a person like him who is both radically humble and yet also completely fearless. The passage opens with all these Jewish officials and they're coming to John and they're saying, who are you? What are you about? What's your identity? What's the story with you? He's the center of all the attention. And if there was ever a man who had the temptation to make things about himself, especially as Jesus is growing in fame and popularity, John was the guy, right? Matthew chapter 11, Jesus refers to John as the greatest of all men who have have lived, right? That's a, that's a pretty high compliment coming from Jesus, right? And yet everything John says and everything he does is about getting the attention off of him and on to Jesus. He goes so far as to describe Jesus in verse 27 as someone whose sandals he is unworthy to even untie. And you're sitting there thinking, sandals are slip-on, why are we tying things, right? <laughs> you see, what John's actually saying there is something pretty remarkable. See, in that day, to take someone's sandals off was a kind of a grody endeavor. You're walking around on just, there's no pavement, it's just dirt and grime and everything. It was a very demeaning task to take off someone else's shoes and to wash their feet. And yet, what you see John the Baptist here saying is that I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to do that job. Only slaves were required to take off people's shoes. And John says, I'm lower on the totem pole than even that. See, and what John is doing is he is making Jesus big and himself small. And he's not doing that in a way that's like, woe is me, I'm just kind of like white trash, like I don't really, I'm, like there's nothing going on with me, I'm just pitiful and sad. That's not what Jesus, that's, that's not the way John is talking about it. He's doing it in a fearless kind of way. You see, John was not afraid to tell people about who Jesus was. And at the same time, John was also not afraid to tell people about who he was not. He did not care what people thought about him. He was not controlled or conditioned by other people's opinions of him. In fact, he says, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the Messiah. Stop asking about me. You're asking the wrong questions. What you need to be doing is figuring out who Jesus is. He's the one you're looking for. He is the one you're after. He is the important one. I am not. And when you see yourself that way, when you see yourself as unworthy to even untie Jesus' sandals, and you see him as well as the Lamb of God who comes to take away your sin, what it produces in you is this humble fearlessness. You're free to proclaim who Jesus is because you know that he's the thing that matters more than anything, and you're free to make little of yourself and much of him. You're free from what other people think about you because what you know is who he is. At the same time, what you know is like John does, is that even though you are deeply unworthy to even untie his sandals, he uses you to make much of himself. John refers to himself as the voice crying out in the wilderness. Even though John is unworthy, God uses him to make much of Jesus. And so you have a humble fearlessness that comes from seeing 
Jesus as the lamb and the knowledge of it. That's a gift. And there is enough there to just sit and marvel in for at least another 20 minutes. But we got two more stories we've got to get to, and there's such good stuff in them. The next one's found in verses 35 through 42. John the Baptist, he sees Jesus again, and he calls out, he points people to him again, calling Jesus again, the Lamb of God. And this time, two of John's disciples, they go and follow him, and they ask a question that gives off a real strong stalker vibe, if you're honest, right? right? They're like, Jesus, where are you staying? Just wondering, right? We promise we're not going to come kill you in the night, right? Jesus, he graciously overlooks the awkwardness of their question, right? And he says, come, find out. Let me show you. So they go with Jesus, and, 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 and they spend the day with him, John says. And at the end of their day with Jesus, something incredible happens. You see, Andrew, he is absolutely convinced that this Jesus, who John the Baptist told him was the Lamb of God, that he is who he said he is. Andrew's absolutely convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. That word Messiah in Hebrew or Christ in Greek, it's the same thing. It means anointed one. In biblical times, anointing was someone with oil was a sign that God had appointed them for a specific divine task. God told Elijah to anoint Elisha to succeed him as Israel's prophet. And Aaron was anointed as the first high priest of Israel. And Samuel, he anoints David and Saul as future kings of Israel. But what you see is that all of these people who are anointed and empowered by God to lead his people in these specific kinds of ways, they all fall short. They all leave us longing for a better prophet, a better priest, a better king. And so throughout the Old Testament, there's all these prophets about someone who would come and be that true and better prophet and priest and king, one who would reveal God perfectly as the ultimate prophet, and one who would mediate a better covenant, a better relationship with God, and be the better high priest, one who would ultimately come to rescue and deliver God's people and inaugurate God's kingdom once and for all. And the Jews refer to that coming person, that promised rescuer, as the Messiah. Throughout the Old Testament, this expectation and tension just keeps building and growing. And every time there's a new king or a new person who delivers God's people or a new person who speaks on God's behalf, the question God's people are always asking, is this the one? Is this the one who will finally rescue and redeem, reveal God to us rightly? But none of them are, and the Old Testament ends, and the Messiah still hasn't come. And there's 400 years of silence. And what Andrew has come to understand and believe, the thing that is so shocking, the thing that is so revealing, is that in Jesus, that promise has been kept. In Jesus, is God's promise to send a better prophet, a better king, a better priest. That Jesus is the promise kept of that thing that God has that God has promised. He's the one who's come to reveal God perfectly and he's the one who mediates a new relationship with him personally and he's the one who comes to rescue us permanently. And in Jesus what Andrew realizes is that that person has come. In John chapter 20 verse 20, 31 John tells us that believing that Jesus is the Messiah that's the whole reason he's written this book. That people might come to know and believe that that's who Jesus is. And this is the first time that someone proclaims this reality about Jesus. And it's a, it's a really big deal. But it's not just who Jesus is that John's trying to point out to us in this encounter with Andrew here. It's also trying to sh- John's also trying to show us something about how you come to know that truth about him. 
See, John the Baptist, he tells Andrew something about who Jesus was. But what you notice is that it's only after Andrew has spent time with Jesus himself that he comes to know and believe the truth about him. See, the other gospel writers, they tend to focus on Jesus' public teaching and his public ministry. But what you see John doing throughout his gospel is over and over again, he's describing and telling all these personal one-on-one encounters that Jesus has with people. And he's giving us all kinds of stuff, whether it's these three examples we see this morning, or like we're going to see with Nicodemus later in chapter 3, or the, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well in chapter 4, or basically in almost every chapter throughout the whole book. John records for us all these personal encounters that people have with Jesus. Here's the point. Here's the thing John is trying to communicate over and over again throughout this gospel. Secondary knowledge about Jesus is insufficient. Secondary knowledge about Jesus is insufficient. You have to know him yourself. You have to encounter him yourself. Remember, a large portion of John's audience is likely made up of second and third generation Christians, people who grew up in Christian homes, people whose parents or grandparents believed in Jesus, came to faith in him. And what John understands is that the most dangerous thing that anyone can ever do is to assume that just because the people before you believe something about Jesus that you have as well. D.A. Carson, he so wisely puts it this way, what one generation believes, the next assumes, and the third forgets and denies. See, what John is trying to do over and over again throughout this gospel is to make clear that you cannot follow Jesus by living off the faith of somebody else. Just because your parents believed, or your family believed, or the, you went to church, that's not what it's about. Following Jesus requires, it means a personal encounter with him. It means a real relationship with him. Not a secondary relationship, but a primary one. And what you see happening throughout the gospel, and even in our passage this morning, is that a primary relationship with Jesus often begins with a secondary one. It often begins with a friend who knows something about him, who invites you in to explore, and who invites you in to know him more. But it cannot remain there. You have to have your own relationship with Jesus, your own encounter with him. See, here's the reality. Jesus is not just a truth to be understood. He is a person to be known. And that changes things. And until you're trying to get to know Jesus, not just the answers, not just the information about him, you're never really going to know him. See, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't ask good questions. Jesus graciously invites us, and see in the passage, he invites people to come and see, to investigate. He's not just asking for blind faith. But what I am saying is that even the best answers won't be enough unless what you're after is trying to know Jesus yourself. He's not a riddle to be solved. He's not a puzzle to be finished. He's a person to know. And when you encounter him, it doesn't always remove all your questions, but what it does always do is enable you to trust him in the midst of your questions. In the midst of the stuff that doesn't make sense, in the midst of the things that are confusing, when you encounter him, when you know him, it enables you to have faith in the midst of the questioning. And so we see Jesus, right, as he's the Messiah. He's the one that you 
that you encounter with, you spend time with. And that's how you know him. The last thing I want to show you from this second little vignette is that knowing Jesus, it transforms your identity. Andrew goes and he tells his brother Simon about Jesus and he brings him to Jesus. And when he meets Jesus, something incredible happens. Verse 42 puts it this way. Jesus looked at him and he said, you are Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. See, in a Jewish culture, naming held deep significance and renaming held even more significance because it was fundamentally not just about what people called you, but it was about an identity, who you really were. And what's so interesting about John's account of Peter's renaming is the total and complete lack of details about what the new name means. You read the other gospel accounts, what you find is that they all give descriptions about, oh, Peter got this new name, here's what it means. Peter means rock, and Jesus talks about how on Peter, on this foundation, he's going to build his church, and yet John includes absolutely none of those details. Why? Here's the reality. John doesn't include any of that stuff because the point is not the specifics about Peter's new identity, but rather on the fact that Jesus is the one who gives it to him. It is irrelevant what Peter's new identity is. The point is that he gets it from Jesus. And when you have a personal encounter with him, he changes your very identity. John Piper puts it this way, the point here is that Jesus has authority to give you whatever name he pleases and in giving you a new name to determine your destiny. There is no identity for your life better than the one that Jesus gives for his is full of grace upon grace and it comes from the fullness of his authority. So here's the reality, when you meet Jesus, he changes you, not just on the outside, but he changes you from the inside out. He transforms your very identity and in turn your very destiny. The direction of Simon's life is altogether different than the directions of Peter's. You'll see that at the very end of the story when Peter encounters Peter again and he has this conversation with him at the very end of the story after his resurrection. But this identity is not just a name change, it's a life change. And the reality is the identity that Jesus gives you, the identity that he gives to Peter here is his true identity. When the passage says that Jesus looked at him, it can also be translated that Jesus looked into him. You see, the identity that Jesus gives to Peter is Peter's true identity. It's who he had made him to be from the very beginning. The author of all light and life and truth was telling Peter who he really was. When you encounter Jesus, that's what he does for you. He tells you the truth, not just about himself, but he tells you the truth about who he has made you to be. And the identity he gives you, it transforms the direction of your life. And we could, again, spend a whole ton of time just marveling at that reality. And yet there's one more story, there's one more encounter that John tells us about that that you can't miss this morning. The last one is about Philip and Nathaniel. Jesus calls Philip to follow him, and then Philip, he goes and tells Nathaniel, who is at the very least quite skeptical about this Jesus character, right? Verse 46, he says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Not only was Nazareth kind of a podunk, middle of nowhere town, everybody at this time knew that the Messiah was coming from Bethlehem, not from Nazareth. And so Nathaniel is quite skeptical, and yet he goes with Philip anyways. 
He goes to investigate, who is this Jesus guy? And when he meets Jesus, Jesus tells him that he already saw him, that he already knows him, and Nathaniel is blown away. And people have been trying for centuries to kind of figure out the hidden meaning behind the fig tree and exactly what Jesus is talking about. I'll just tell you right now, it's irrelevant. The whole point is that Jesus knows something about Nathaniel that only God could know. That's the point. And what Nathaniel realizes that he is the person Philip told him he was. He's the one that Moses and the prophets and everything had been foreshadowing. That he is the son of God. He is the king of Israel. Those are messianic titles. And we could spend a whole sermon just talking about those two things. But I want to show you in our just last couple of minutes, I want to show you this other thing that Nathaniel comes to know about Jesus because it is so incredible. Verse 50, Jesus says to him, you believe because I told you you were under the fig tree and you'll see greater things than that. Verse 51, he adds, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus here, he's referencing a story that you can read about, you can find in Genesis chapter 28. It's a story of Jacob and he's just stolen his brother's birthright in this very deceptive kind of way. And he's on the run after doing that. And he's fleeing for his life. And he's just in absolute despair. He feels like he's lost his family and he's lost God and he's lost everything. And, and what happens is he's just exhausted and he falls asleep and God gives him this dream. And in this dream, there's, there's a, a ladder that opens out of the sky and comes down from heaven. And on the ladder, there are these angels ascending and descending from heaven itself. And, and what Jesus is doing in referencing this story and in putting himself in there, in describing himself, what he's saying is that, Nathaniel, let me tell you something incredible, something beyond your imagination. That dream that Jacob had, what you're going to see is that I'm the fulfillment of that dream. Notice Jesus doesn't say that the angels are descending to the Son of Man. He says they're descending on this ladder. He says they're descending up and down on the Son of Man. See, Jesus isn't just telling Nathaniel, I'm at the top of the ladder. I'm the gateway into heaven. He's saying, Nathaniel, I'm the ladder itself. I'm the means by which you come into the very presence of God. I'm the way you know him. I'm the way you meet him. And when you know me, what you're going to see is heaven meeting earth. And Jesus reveals to Nathaniel this incredible truth about himself. But for a moment, I just want to go back to where that all begins, because that really matters. You see, all of... This Jesus revealing more and more of himself to Nathaniel begins with someone who is skeptical and yet honestly investigating Jesus. He is doubtful about what Philip says about Jesus, and yet he still comes with him to investigate. Jesus affirms this. Verse 47, Jesus says about Nathaniel approaching, he says, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. You see, what you're going to see throughout John's gospel and throughout the other gospels is that oftentimes the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they come to Jesus with questions, but they're not honest questions. They're not real questions. They're, they've already made up their mind about who Jesus is, and they're just questions designed to trap Jesus or to trick him into saying something that's going to cause a problem. And their hearts are hard. They're not genuine. They've already decided. And Jesus, over and over again, just absolutely refuses to play their game. And yet, what you see happening continually throughout the Gospels is that people who are curious, people who are genuine, people who are even full of doubts, they come to Jesus, and what happens? Jesus lets them in. He opens himself up to them. He makes himself known to them. He shows himself to them in real incredible ways. Jesus sees Nathaniel's skepticism and yet his honesty. And he says, I can work with that. 
I hope that encourages some of you who are here and you're still figuring out what you think about Jesus. God can deal with your doubts. He can deal with your skepticism. He can deal with your curiosity. He is not afraid of any of that. And if you will come to him honestly and ask him to keep showing himself to you, he loves to meet people in that. And so ask your questions of him. Be honest about your doubts with him. He wants to show himself to you. And when he does that, what you're going to find is that like John and Andrew and Philip, you will not be able to keep yourself from telling people about him. You won't be able to stop it. Why do people, all the people in the story who come to know the truth about Jesus, why do all of them go and tell others about him? Why? Why is that always the response when people find out the truth about him? Because when you see Jesus as the Lamb of God, when you see him as the Messiah, when you see him as the Son of Man, the latter, the very means by which heaven meets earth, ah, you're captivated by him. He's not small and insignificant. He's not just another, just another piece of information. What you see is that he's God himself come to know you. And you cannot keep that to yourself. I'm convinced that the primary reason why people don't share their faith is often because Jesus has just become very small and insignificant in their eyes. And what John is trying to do throughout this gospel is to present Jesus as spectacular, as captivating, as utterly compelling. Because that's what he really is. But the other reason I think people often tend to not share their faith is because they're afraid that people are going to ask questions that they just can't answer. It happens to Philip, right? Nathaniel, he goes and tells Philip, or Philip, he goes and tells Nathaniel, and he says, Hey, I found the Messiah, Jesus from Nazareth. And all he gets is, th- is doubts and questions thrown back in his face. And the reality is, the good news is that you don't need all the answers. Philip didn't need them. See, because Philip's confidence was not rooted in his, his ability to have all the answers. His, abil- his confidence was rooted in the fact that Jesus was the answer to all the questions. That he's the thing that Nathaniel needed. That he's the thing, that he was the truth that he was after. And so Philip is not confident that he has all the answers. He's confident that Jesus does. And so he invites his friend, come and see there's a humility there and a confidence, right? Because what Nathaniel realizes is, I don't have the answers, but Jesus is. And if you'll come and see, you'll find them. I hope that encourages you as you think about sharing your faith and you think about proclaiming Jesus. You do not need all of the answers. What you need is Jesus. And you need to invite your friends to investigate him. Say, come and see who he is and what he's like and what he's done. Let him speak for himself. That's one of the reasons I love our small groups at River City. Because wherever you are at, wherever friends are at, small groups are a safe place to invite somebody to investigate Jesus. All we do is open up God's word and see what it has to say. And so wherever you're at, that's a safe place. And so what you see happening throughout the passage, right, is that God is revealing himself to people. He's showing himself, and he does it through friends who he's found already, who find other friends, and he does it when we honestly pursue him, even in our doubts, and he does it in the midst of awkward questions, in the midst of insecurity, and he does it in the midst of people's attention grabbing for themselves, and he reveals himself not just as the Son of Man and the gate of heaven, the the ladder by which heaven meets earth, and not just as the Messiah, the Christ, the true and better prophet and priest and king, but he announces himself, proclaims himself to be the very Lamb of 
the one who takes away the sins of the world. And when you know him personally, it transforms you. That's what John's trying to get at in all these stories. When you have a personal encounter with Jesus, it changes you. You cannot remain the same. And that's what we're remembering and celebrating a lot when we take communion. Communion doesn't make you right with God, and it doesn't change your status or standing with Him. It says communion is a chance to remember who Jesus is. To remember Him as the true and better prophet and priest and king. To remember Him as the gate of heaven, the one who makes God known, and the means by which you can know Him and relate to Him. And He's the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. Not by not by hard work, but as we trust in his sacrifice on our behalf. And so if you believed in Jesus to be those things for you, then I want to encourage you during our time of communion, go back and take communion. There's a table on the back on the left and the right. You can dip the bread in the juice and take communion that way. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still in that phase like Andrew was where you're coming and seeing who Jesus might be, then I want you to know how welcome you are here in this community. But I also want to be clear. God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions. He's not after a heart that's just trying to earn something from him or just do something you think you're owed. God's after a heart that's full of faith and hope that comes from knowing the truth about him and encountering him personally. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and this community is. And like you see happening again and again throughout these stories is that people come to know the truth about Jesus through friends, through relationships, through others. And we would love as a community to be those people for you as you continue to explore him. So as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song, I'd encourage you, wherever you're at, talk with God. In telling us all these stories, what John is trying to do is not just give us more information about Jesus. He is inviting us to ask the simple question, have you had an encounter with him yourself? Do you know him or do you just know about him? That answer to that question makes all the difference in the world. One of the ways you can tell if you're being changed, if you know him, if you have an encounter with him, is if you're being changed by him. Are you growing in a humble fearlessness like John? Are you finding your new identity in him like Peter? Are you telling others about him like Andrew? See, for some of you, the invitation is to ask the question, do I know him? Or am I living off a secondary relationship with him? For others of you, the question is, if you know him, then the invitation is to make much of him. To proclaim him as the thing your friends need. And to join Jesus as Jesus goes and finds those who will follow him. To join him and to go find others with him. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for our time together in your word this morning. We're so grateful for these stories that give us glimpses, they give us snapshots into the reality of who you are, the eternity-altering reality of who you are, Jesus. We pray that as we see you, Jesus, in your word this morning as the Lamb of God, as the Messiah, as the Son of Man, the, the great ladder who connects us with heaven, God, we pray that we might be captivated, that we might be full of awe and worship for you. And that as we encounter you in your word, Jesus, you might transform us. That you might settle our doubts. 
that you might give us faith in the midst of our curiosity and that you might transform our lives so that we live for you. We pray. Amen.